Okay, everyone, how's it going? We are live right there. What is happening? Steven Ignoramus here. Welcome to Call Me Ignorant, episode number 26, 831 p.m., June 24th, 2019. So pleased you could be with us. Call Me Ignorant is a live conversation show, whether with an interesting content creator, an expert in a field, a controversial figure, or with a fellow human being trying to spread a message. Call Me Ignorant will try to solve the problems of the world, conversationally speaking. We are streaming live right now to YouTube, Twitch, Periscope, Mixer, DLive, and Picarto. If you can't catch the show live, you can find it after the fact on the above-mentioned platforms, also on BitChute and FreedomScoop.com. Call Me Ignorant is also available in podcast format on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. You can find me on Twitter at IgnoramusSteve or send me an email at StevenIgnoramus at gmail.com. Topic ideas, questions, and potential guests for the show are much appreciated. My guest today on the program is Chief Chuck Whitworth. Chuck is a retired U.S. Navy Chief Petty Officer, a mentor, and a blogger. I'm really excited to talk to him today about his time in the Navy, mentorship, and how to better the world through building relationships and well-placed humor. Welcome to Call Me Ignorant, Chief Chuck. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a really, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and honestly, I was kind of blown away when you invited me. So it's like, hey, who wants to talk to an old fat Navy chief? But apparently you do. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Have yeah. A lot, definitely have a lot of questions today. And uh, we're going to talk about your time in the Navy, Navy and leadership and stuff like that. But um, yeah. how, how long were you in the Navy, Navy for? I was in the Navy for 24 years. I, uh, I started out, I graduated high school in uh, June of 81 in a little town in Georgia. And uh, immediately, I'd actually, the summer previous, because back then, it's kind of weird. You could delay entry with the Army. I did boot camp in the Army and then came home and then went back for advanced training. And I actually did two years in the Army as a welder. And uh, I got tired of camping out for a living. So I kind of looked around and talked to some uh, a Navy recruiter. And uh, it was slightly before the YMCA from the village people and in the Navy came out. So... <laughs> <clears throat> but little did I know what I was getting into there. But, you know, I talked to these Navy dudes. I wanted to go aviation because I'd always been, you know, thrilled and fascinated with airplanes. So I went down to the Navy recruiter. I'm like, hey, what can you do? And they're like, hey, we'll take you. So I uh, went in the Navy, you know, 1983-ish and uh, had no intentions of spending more than about four years. Mm. And then I kind of forgot about that and, you know. Next thing I know, 24 years are going by and I'm retiring from the Navy. So, wow. um, yeah, it was, it was a good run, man. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So, um, how, what's the process like, um, transferring from one branch of the military to the other? Um, back then it was actually, it was pretty easy. Um, I just kind of, uh, I talked to, uh, some of the army guys and I was kind of like, look, I don't want to do this. I'm, I, I want to go aviation and the army didn't have anything. And I'm like, well, um, what can I do? And they're like, well, yeah, there's really not a lot we can do for you. So I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to get out. I was on a two-year active uh, times, two-year active, four-year reserve with, mm -hmm. a with a stint for the National Guard. So I finished up my two years, and then I went, I was like, look, I'm going to go talk to the Navy recruiters. And <clears throat> as it turned out, Navy took me no problem. Uh, but because there was a gap in my reporting over 90 days, I actually did two boot camps. And it's funny, I tweeted about that today because uh, the the big topic has been somebody, you know, people making fun of life coaches. And uh, I'm like, yeah, man, I, I did, you know, our self-improvement courses. And I went, yeah, I did two eight-week self-improvement courses. I did two boot camps. I did an Army boot camp in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And I went to Navy boot camp in Orlando, Florida. So, uh, you know what, it's, it, it didn't kill me. And it, it actually did me good. I mean, I was getting paid. So mm -hmm. it's, not a, it's not a bad deal. Boot camp is... Boot camp is not as bad as everybody thinks it is. You know, as long as you have, you know, the right mental attitude going in, um, they're going to screw with you. Mm -hmm. um, but really, I mean, boot camp, I tell people all the time, it's the simplest time of your life because you literally are told what to do. I mean, you're told when to get up. You're told when to eat. You're, gonna, you're told what you're going to eat. You know, it, you know, make your bed, you know, get dressed, brush your teeth, go out, march, run, shoot, okay. do all this other cool stuff. It ain't bad. It was pretty fun. So it's it's not just uh it's not just physical training it's actually it's actual shooting and tactics and stuff like that too. In the army it was in the army it was great because you actually did field tactics you know you went and got qualified. Um, Navy was a little more um, I guess it was a little more book 
mm-hmm. you know, you're, lear- you're learning ships and you, but you, you have a mock-up ship at boot camp and you really, you, you start learning, you know, nautical stuff because it is a whole separate language. You know, you got to learn port and starboard, you know, fore and aft. You got all the stuff you have to learn. So it's a little bit more walk through it, you know, but it's it's a lot of heritage and a lot of history stuff. But you still at Navy boot camp, you know, boot camp is boot camp. You're going to go through the gas chamber. Um, so you're going to get to know what tear gas is like. And that's a hoot. Whoa. And nah. yeah, you know, and you're going to get qualified with small arms, you know, rifle, pistol, stuff like that. Um and I mean, there's there's an element of physical training to it, which is, to me, that was the most fun. And actually doing drill, marching and doing drill, you know, that's the most fun because it's really, it's just, it's it's not mindless. It looks good. It's precision. And when you hit it just right, it's a really good feeling, but it really is mindless. You get into that flow and it's rhythm and time just goes and it's so nice and you feel good doing it. But yeah, you know, I mean, I ha- I was kind of a, I was kind of an outlier when it came to boot camps back then because everybody else in the early eighties, you know, they did, as soon as you get there, Hey, why don't you, why don't you join the Navy? You know, well, I wanted an education. I wanted this. I want a good health care benefits. You know, they got to me and I just shrugged my shoulders. I was like, ah, oh, you know, I just want to kill people. Wow. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I was, then the next day I got to go take the seal test. And so, you know, but for the fact that I swim like a concrete block, you know, I'd be Jocko Willink today, but oh wow, man. I was actually going to ask you if you if you knew that dude. Yeah, um, I know. You know, I know of him, and right. actually, I know I know a lot of Navy SEALs, mm-hmm. and you know, Jocko is you know nothing against him. I, I have nothing against the guy. I mean, he puts out a great message, uh, but for you know the Navy SEALs, Jocko is actually the outlier. Mm. Um, most SEALs, you would never know that they are a SEAL. You know, they're not they're not big hulking. You know, over the top guys are very small, usually wiry, strong, but, you know, they all are, they're all very quiet, but I mean, I've thrown them out of the airplane that, you know, we flew, they like to jump out of airplanes and stuff, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it was one of those things. So I just, I had a different attitude about the military. Mm. Uh, I wasn't in it to, I wasn't in it for the long term or for the benefits. It was, I was, I grew up in literally a little town that had one red light and like 1500 people in Georgia and I wanted out and mm. you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like wasting my parents' money at college because I sucked as a student. Um, so I was like, well, this looks like it'd be fun. So, and then it turned into a career. So wow. I guess, I guess I was lucky. So, <laughs> so how many, like, uh, before you made that decision to go in, um, did you have any in- interest before that? I mean, you said you just wanted out, but did you have any, you know, how many years before you made that decision did you had you been flirting with that idea? Well, you know, it was it's funny because, you know, growing up in the South and I had a I mean, my dad and my mom were awesome. Um, my dad was really a you know a huge influence on me and it's really a lot of the reason I am the way I am today. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of guys that can say that, but you know, as as I started going through high school, <clears throat> I I will I'll I wanted to be, I was a class clown. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I played high school football. That was important to me. Uh, I was a class clown and, you know, didn't see any purpose in, in algebra. Um, loved English classes. I loved to write, you know, I could sit down and just start writing and type a story. But, you know, when it came to the mechanics of English, you know, dangling participles and how do you mechanic a sentence, I didn't really care. Mm. Um, in math, I just hated math all the way around. It, but it's just, it didn't strike me. So, I kind of started leaning towards the, uh, in my high school, we had two tracks. You could go academic, which was college prep, basically. And then you had vocational because we had an agricultural center. We had shop, you know, stuff like that. So I kind of floated to that side, got towards the end of high school. And my dad was like, look, dude, you know, he was, he's a blue collar guy. He was a telephone lineman, you know, for Bell and GTE and, and, you know, just, we didn't have a lot of money. So he goes, look, he goes, I can't pay for you to go to college. So he goes, you got two choices. He goes, you can be like everybody else here and go to work in the, the textile mill. He goes, but I'll be damned if you're going to, you know, marry some local chick, knock her up and live in a trailer in the backyard behind our house. He goes, so he goes, you got two choices. He goes, you can either strike out somewhere, get a job, pay your way through college, or you can join the military. Mm. And I went, okay. You know, it kind of, it sounds harsh in these days and in this environment. Right. 
Um, but it was more or less, you know, you know, my 18th, you know, I graduated high school at 17 because I started a year early, you know, so really for my 18th birthday, I got a cupcake with a candle going, Hey, you, you don't have to go anywhere in particular, but you're not staying here. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, it sounds harsh, but it really was. And it was probably the smartest thing that they ever did to me. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, so when I got in the military, I went in the army, you know, welding struck me and it was a great trade. I'm glad I learned that. Um, and you know, it's funny, you come full circle 20 something, almost 30 something years later, and you got Mike Rowe that, you know, and other advocates that are advocating the trades, you know, instead of a straight college degree that we need trades people. And I'm glad I have that talent if I ever needed to fall back on it. But aviation always struck me. I was a little kid. My dad, you know, we go to the airport in Atlanta and that was a big deal when you lived in the country in Georgia, you know, Atlanta was, you know, oh my God, it was a big city. And I mean, to a little kid like me, it was, and you go to the airport and I can remember I'd stand at the glass and, you know, you see these airplanes take off. And from the time I was just a little kid that fascinated me, I was like, how do they, how do those things do that? You know, where are they going? You know, how do they get in the air like that? And so I always had that deep seated love for aviation. So when I got a chance to go in the Navy, it was kind of like, okay, hmm. um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I wasn't interested in flying at first. You know, I wanted to work on airplanes and I did, I was a structural mechanic and then I had the opportunity to become a flight engineer on P3s. And so I went through all the training for that. And, and then I really started loving flying. It's uh, it was really fun, but you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you, you know, every, every young man or every young person, you know, right around that time frame, there's there's that milestone of your 18th birthday. Of what are you going to do? You know, and, you know, some people don't hit that milestone until they're late 20s, some they're 30, some never hit it. Um, you know, me, it was just I kind of got, you know, I got pushed out of the nest because probably left to my own devices. I would have hung around a little small Georgia town or somewhere close to it and gotten in trouble, you know, despite wanting out the i would have been a rebel and gotten in trouble so wow. um and you know the military just kind of the military the whole thing that that oddly enough is a big brand and a big selling point on twitter these days is uh you get that that brotherhood that camaraderie ship that sense of belonging um and you do you know you you grow up in the conservative south you know i'm you know you grow up being a patriot you know you love your country um, and all that stuff, but it, it really wasn't so much about that. You know, my family had a history of serving. So I was just like, yeah, let's go see what I can do. It's like, they're going to pay me. They're going to give me clothes. They're going to give me, you know, food and they're going to house me and they're going to give me extra money. I was like, shoot, man, this is a pretty good pretty deal. Easy deal at that point. Yeah. Pretty easy decision. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy. What are the, um, what are the duties of a, a flight engineer? What do you actually do? Well, in the P3, it's, you know, for the folks watching or going to watch, you can Google a P3 Orion and it'll show you a picture of the airplane. You know, it's a big, big maritime patrol aircraft, four engine turboprop. Um, really, as a flight engineer, it's a unique position in the Navy because it's um, it's really it's the only enlisted flight crew. You know, the, the pilot and co-pilot are officers, hmm. uh, the navigator and the tactical officer are officers. The enlisted crew in the back that runs the, you know, anti-submarine warfare or the surveillance gear um, are enlisted. But the flight engineer, we sit up front, you know, the middle seat. And really what it is, is I'm, I was responsible for the <clears throat> pre-flight weight and balance, fueling, uh, starting engines, setting takeoff power, you know, all normal regimes of flight. But I was also the coordinator for in-flight emergencies, you know, because Typically, a P3, if we're operating tactical, we're somewhere between 200 and 1,000 feet off the water. Um, so in that situation, time, obviously, you know, you're just milliseconds to impact if something happens. And, and so the way that it's set up is you have the pilot in command, second pilot, and flight engineer. So in the event of an emergency, you know, I would see it because they're outside watching. They're either tactically watching other guys watching for traffic, you know, watching us off the water. I'm inside the airplane scanning everything. And so, you know, the way it's set up is in the event of an emergent in-flight emergency is I call the emergency and start the procedures. You know, whoever's steering, he continues to, he aviates. It's aviate, you know, communicate and communicate. So 
we're leaving Junior over here. He's he's out of the picture at that point. It's like, dude, you just fly. You keep us off the water. The other pilot and I, we're going to walk through the emergency procedures and the checklist. And it's it's a lot of mental stuff. You know, you'd have to memorize a lot of procedures. Um, but you know, for the most part, you in flight and all that. And then you know, I took care of the airplane on post flight. And the unique thing about flight engineers, I also worked in the maintenance department as well. So there were a lot of days. You know, you pre-flight for two, two and a half, three hours. You go out and do a 10, 12-hour mission. You come back post-flight for an hour. And on the road, in some of the places we were at, I was also the mechanic. Uh, so, you know, then I might have another four or five hours ahead of me fixing the airplane. Wow. And you turn around and do it all again the next day. Um, but it's, it was, you know, again, you know, when I say it like that, it's like, yeah, that's a lot of work. But then again you know, I'm, I'm visiting places all around the world and, you know, I'm getting paid pretty good money to, you know, screen 200 feet across the water at 300 knots, you know, looking for drug runners and subs and shooting missiles at things. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Good. So I kind of, I kind of look at it. It was, a, it was a, it was a privilege for me. It really was. Did you have any uh, like close calls or scares or any big oh, yeah. emergencies? Oh, a lot. Okay. Yeah, see, see, I think I made, uh, God, I was talking to, when I was, Chance Lunsford and I were on, was on his podcast. I think I, I counted it up. I think I had 22, I had 22 three-engine landings, uh, which, not a big deal. You got four, four engines, three, losing one is no big deal. Okay. Um, but I've had, um, I've had uh, three confirmed engine fires. Um, I had one where we literally, um, we were 200 feet off the water and I had two engines go out at one time. So <clears throat> our rate of descent at that point was, I think, cause we always calculated out. And that's the cool thing about being a flight engineer is you, you learn to think ahead. Mm. You always play the what if game. So when we would shut, we would shut an engine down to save fuel. So we're already off the water with one engine shut down to save fuel. So I always had a calculation in my mind. It's like, okay, if I have another engine fail, I know what my two engine rate of descent is. I know I'm at 200 feet. I know if my rate of descent is greater than 200 feet, you know, per minute, I've got less than 60 seconds to come up with a solution. Wow. To something. Uh, this particular case was at night off. The, it was in the sea of Japan and it was at night. And of course it was in a thunderstorm. And we had one engine shut down and I had another engine go offline on me uh, for no apparent reason. And I had a, I was already in the negative. So I had about 20 seconds to get the engine restarted. And I reached up and pulled the feather button, restarting the number four engine. And I mean, we were literally down to about 50 feet off the water, still at about 130, 40 knots. And, um, I got the engine up online and we leveled out and immediately we stopped, we climbed, you know, now I'm getting the number one engine that was loitered. I'm getting it back on. So I'm, I'm reaching up. I've got two feather, but I'm, I'm restarting two engines at the same time. And just as we climbed above a thousand feet, my number three engine caught on fire. So oh yeah, it was, I was kind of confused at the point. <laughs> I got to the point to where I was just like, you know, once I got the two other engines running, I got the third engine shut down for the fire and all that. And it was, uh, I'm like, I think it's time to go home. I'm pretty sure we're, <laughs> oh, done. we're done for the day. So, wow, man. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. I mean, I think the scariest moments were, um, doing the, we did a lot of the war on drugs operations, mm. um, out of South America. Um, I think the scariest thing about that was, you know, I can't tell you how many times we go down these little fishing boats and you're 200 feet off the water and you're, and we're doing multiple passes by on taking pictures, obviously for intelligence um, and for customs. And, you know, I think it was a couple of times that we actually had shoulder fired missiles locked on us and we have no defensive systems on a P3. We have no, when we're doing that, we have no offensive systems loaded. Whoa. So I can't, I can't shoot back. I don't have chaff and flares. There's really nothing we can do. Um, so it kind of, it's interesting when you get a lock on, you know, it's just, you, you hustle out as fast as you can. And you hope, you hope that they're using a really shitty Chinese rocket and that it's not going to go off. Um, you're just hoping and praying that it's a bad one that they didn't buy it from the U S or steal it from the U S. Um, but no, I mean, 
you know, for all the bad stuff, you know, all the stuff that it's like, you know, did you, were you, were you ever scared? And it's like, I, I get that asked that question a lot. Right. And it's, you know, the answer is no. And it's, and I tell, but I'll always caveat that with, and it's not because I'm a badass and it's not because I'm some kind of superhero. It is strictly because I was very well trained. Yeah. I was very well disciplined. Um, I practiced, we practice when we train, we train like we fight, we fight like we train. Um, you know, all my time in the flight station, I had thousands upon thousands of hours that were just mundane, boring, but, you know, even sitting on a long, on a long flight across the water, you know, you're always playing the what if game. It's like, okay, so we're flying right now. So if the number three generator drops offline and I lose bus A power to that, what's my next step? Um, and so you really, when, when, you know, things happen, it's just like life, really. Mm. If, if you're prepared and if you have, if you have a plan and a contingency and you're prepared and you train and you think, and you have some common sense and you're confident enough in your abilities that you're calm, you know, that's the first mantra we learn as a flight engineer. It's like, Hey, first thing you do is sit on your hands and think, mm. you know, before you touch anything. And it seems like it's that time sink where the first thing you do is before you touch anything, any handle switch button, is if you just stop and think, it seems like, you know, you're sitting there in your head. It seems like one Mississippi, two Mississippi. And you're like, I got to do something. But really, you've only been there about a second and a half before you've processed this in your head and you made a decision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's really it's no big there's no talent involved. It's just a whole lot of hard work. But that's true for anything in life, really. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I'm a I'm a professional musician and that like and I do live sound as well. And a lot of that, like when you're doing live sound, that's you just explain it to a T because something will go wrong. And mm-hmm. what you do instead before you start like messing with everything, you just sit and think. And mm-hmm. you're, you, I guess I think that probably the thing that people um are surprised about is that what you're doing is what you were doing is like very high stakes. You know, it's like yeah. there's lives on the line, but like the amount of training that goes into that, you know, you're prepared. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you know, and I think to your point about that is, you know, okay, you're a live musician, you're you're doing a speech, you're a teacher, you know, you're an accountant. Um, I tell everybody, it's like, you know, oh wow, man, you're 200 feet over the water, you got 13 souls on board, you know, you got this big multi-million dollar aircraft, you know, a a your life's on the line and all this. Well, yeah, it is. You do the same thing, but I tell people, I'm like, you do the same thing every day going to your work, going to the grocery store, going to the Metro, whatever it is you're doing, you do the same thing. It's just on a, it's on a perspective scale. Mm. And honestly, honestly, you, you know, because of where you live, you know, the beltway around DC, I feel more safe in my airplane at 200 feet over the water and 300 knots than I do driving, you know, around the outer loop of the beltway around (laughs) 270, you know, so I mean, you know, but for, but, but, you know, even to, to your point, to put it in your perspective as a professional musician, you know, to you in, in that perspective and scale, there is an element of risk, you know, your reputation, your credibility, right. your artistic, your artistic license, you know, how are you going to get another job? You're a teacher. So now that credibility is riding on it. So you're right. It's just, it's different perspectives of scales. No, no one is more important than the other by any stretch. So it's all perspective, but again, it's the same formula that comes true. You you train to, to do a, a live music session with the same intensity and with the same process that I use to fly an airplane. And so that's the cool thing about, and, and that's what I try to teach, you know, young people is it's it's about process. You know, and if you have a good solid process. And if your process, I'm not, whatever it is, if it's solid and it works for you and you can replicate that time after time after time, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're planting tomato plants or if it, you're being a brain surgeon at John Hopkins. If your process is solid and you stuck to that and you have the discipline, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. Cool, cool. So what about yeah. you, what about your road from getting uh, from flight engineer to being a chief petty officer? Uh, did you kind of... Was that all of a sudden, or did you like kind of work your way up? Um, I, I'm not really not really aware of like the ranks and stuff in the Navy, so maybe you can yeah. educate us on that. Well, in the Navy, it's it's kind of cool because, um, 
unlike any other branch, you know, when you make, when you hit E7, which is a chief petty officer, you know, sergeant first class in the army or something like that. In the Navy, it's a little different because we change uniforms uh, and you change your job, really. You become, uh, you become senior enlisted and you become more like middle management at a corporation. Um, you know, a Navy chief in the Navy construct is like a, a mid-level, you know, program manager, project manager at a corporation. Mm. Um, so once, once I made the decision to stay in and once I made uh, E6, um, and I knew that I was going to, I knew at that point at about the, I made E6 at the seven year mark, seven year. Yeah. So yeah, something around there. Um, pretty much at the eight year mark. I kind of knew I was going to do this for a living okay. and, and make it a career. Um, so then it just became, okay, you know, I might as well do the best I can and try to advance in rank. Um, the chiefs have a, in the Navy have a very, it's a mystique. Um, you know, you're taught from a very early age as uh, an enlisted and a junior officer in the Navy that, you know, ask the chief. Um, uh-huh. We, we train, we train junior officers and we train enlisted you know, we advise the, the officers um, and most good officers in the Navy will tell you that at some point in their life, the, the turning point in their career was a Navy chief that took them on board and gave them advice. But we also, you know, we're the ones that carry out the orders of the skipper. You know, it's the skipper supposed to be the nice guy, the CO, of the squadron or the captain of the ship. You know, he needs to be the nice guy. We're the enforcers. You know, we, we go out and we make shit happen. I mean, really, that's and the motto of the Navy chiefs, you know, all of our stuff is results, not excuses. Um, and that is a, a, a creed that we live and die by. It's I don't want to hear, you know, for, for lack of a, a better prof- professional terminology, as I would tell my truth, you know, I don't want to hear your bullshit. I want to see what you're doing. You know, we mission comes first, you know, and then we take care of everything else after that. You take care of the mission. I take care of the people. But on the softer side of that, as a chief, your your job is to take care of the people. You know, the old uh, there's an old leadership axiom, you know, that chiefs put into play every single day is, you know, leaders eat last. Mm. Um, you know, we would go on deployment. I'd have 15, 20 guys with me on a deployment that I'm in charge of and four airplanes. You know, the first thing they got taken care of with the airplanes is just, you know, just like old cavalry days, you take care of the horses first. So the war machine got taken care of. And then when it's time to go to the barracks. You know, I made sure that every person on my crew had a room, that the room was satisfactory, that they had food. Everybody was good to go and settled in before I would get my room and settle in. And it sounds like, you know, a lot of people to a lot of people, it's like, well, you know, you have the some people go, well, you've earned that rank and you've earned the privilege to eat first in line and go to the head of the line. And well, Yes, I have. Um, but that doesn't mean that I should exercise it, that I'm more concerned with my people because my people make me, you know, I can't do this by myself, you know, as, as good as I might've been, it takes a team. And without my team, you know, I'm nothing and the Navy's nothing. So I can't do the mission without the team. So I'm, it's imperative. I hate using the term that people are a resource because that's a, a civilian leader school, leadership school mantra that you hear. Hmm. People are your most valuable resource. No, they're really not. They're they're your only resource you have. All the other stuff that you have is useless. Computers, the best programming, the best customer database, the best email list is all crap without the people you surround yourself with. So they're your only resource. So you take care of them. So I kind of knew that that's the whole premise of a Navy chief is, you know, leadership over its management and leadership. And that's where I learned the big difference even before I went to business school was leadership is transformational management is transactional. Mm. So, and, and you learn that at a very, I learned it at a very young age, um, you know, that it's, I can make things happen, but I also have to manage how things happen. So, you know, I kind of knew early on in my career that I wanted to be a chief. And so when you make chief in the Navy, it's, it's a great process. And in the old days, as I say, the old days, uh, you can't do it anymore after Tellhook, the the incident. And that's a long time ago. So people can Google U.S. Navy Tellhook and you'll see what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but we used to have a Navy chief's initiation and it was to you were going to become a member of a fraternity, basically. And and we did some crazy stuff and you did stupid stuff. But 
when you look at it from the outside, it was like, okay, so, you know, why are you, you know, getting covered in fish oil and, you know, cheese and, you know, wading through this and doing these silly games? Well, it's to bond you with your fellow chiefs and, you know, you become part of that brotherhood. But because of political correctness, we can't do that in the Navy anymore. And it's actually, it's been a, it's been a, a, a it's a bad thing. It's a deterrent. Um, because yeah, there's some things we didn't need to do. You don't need to humiliate people. You don't need to degrade people. You don't need to cross that line, but to gather as a group and go through an initiation type rite of passage, um, to join your brother and sister chiefs, it, it means something and it's a bond. It also opens up a huge network to you. And, and I think that's a lot of what, uh, and particularly because I focus on young men, obviously, is, you know, I think with a lot of young men today, I think that's a lot of what they're looking for online. And that's why you you see a lot of what goes on with some of the silliness with, you know, the, the, the red pill, and the blue pill. Right. And, you know, some of this and, you know, you and I could do a whole nother show on my opinions about red pill and if anybody follows me on twitter you've probably seen some of the remarks i've made you know i i look at i'm neither red pill nor blue pill in life i'm just a flintstone chewable vitamin so you know <laughs> I'm, you know keep your pills and, and honestly to be honest with you i had never seen the matrix hmm. until about six months ago oh okay um it's a mediocre movie at best in my opinion i, I didn't really think it was all that good um and then when I discovered that this whole ideology and almost cult religion was based on a 20 second clip mm. of him sitting there talking about choose the pill Neo. I'm like, this is where you can, this is what you came up with for a basis for your ideology. I'm like, oh, oh my God. It's like, you guys are really mental. You're mental midgets really. And it shows your immaturity. Wow. And, and I think a lot of the guys, it's just, they never had that chance to bond. Yeah. And they, and they never had that 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 rite of passage, you know, into whatever they consider manhood or whatever that is. So they kind of develop their own thing, mm. uh, frame or whatever. And so and then it's easily, you know, it's easy to get guys to jump in on some of that when you're like blasting it. And it's just, you know, at 100 miles an hour so. Man, I got us way off track. That's fine. No, no, I appreciate that because that's the thing that I've been, you know, I've talked about that with my dad and my friends and stuff like that for a while that it's like, it's one of the things that I, I don't want to say our whole culture got wrong, but there's no, you know, you know, there, you, I guess you become an adult when you're 18, but there's no, other than the government telling you, there's no like set day. I mean, like in, in, uh, in Judaism, they have like a bar mitzvah and you mm -hmm. know, a lot of cultures, they have like the day you become a man or like a initiation ceremony, but that's, that's, yeah. that's something that's, that's missed. But that was uh, they had that, you know, with your, you know, would you call it hazing, you know, for lack um, of a better word? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did hazing. And I'll be quite honest with you. And some of it was quite hilarious, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and I mean, I got hazed. Yeah. And, and it was just it was just pure fun. I mean, you know, it was but there was always little lessons in there for, you know, and, and an example is, you know, you would sit there and. I got initiated in New Orleans, Louisiana, because I was stationed there. And initiation is always the, the middle of September. And it's still very warm and humid, but, you know, we we would march through the, the gullies, you know, waist deep in water. And, you know, they'd spray you down with fish oil, which, by the way, fish oil is an awesome mosquito repellent. Really? Okay. Yeah. Keep, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you smell. You smell, you smell like a Thai whorehouse when it's all over, <laughs> in general, but whatever. Um, but, you know, they spray you down with stuff. They, they make you walk around with little stinkers catfish bait, you know, perched on your mouth, under your nose. You know, you've got you're getting covered with grits and sand. It's, it's a lot like hell week. Okay. Seal. But, but the point is, is you don't realize at the time you're like, this is the most miserable night of my life. But you know that tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, you're going to get showered up. Your family's going to be there. You're going to come out in khaki uniform. They're going to put your gold anchors on your, your collar. Mm. It's going to be so you know something to work for. But more than that is the lesson I learned is, and I learned it the heart, just like every chief did. You think that day is hard and you think it's hard going through the process of being coming a chief. Once you are a chief and you have to deal with some of the things you have to deal with, 
there were a lot of days when I was like, man, can I just do the push-ups? Can mm. I just be covered in fish oil? I mean, I had to be a casualty assistance officer. I had to go to a house where a sailor committed suicide. You know, you had to be the first Navy rep on scene. I had to, esc- you know, have escorted his body home to his family. Wow. You know, some of the stuff that you have to do on a day-to-day basis. And what you do is you look back and you go, it's, it's a it's a powerful lesson that we all learned that, you know, the SEALs put the only easy day was yesterday. And that's true. And you just never really know. You think as bad as you think it is now, you know, Mr. Murphy will show up. It can always be worse. But you 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 steeled yourself for it, and you 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 taught yourself to endure things. So there was a lot of that, and I think where, you know, like a lot of young men now, and 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 I and I've talked about this with with Bill Macer at the Men of Character Conference and things. I will caveat this and disclaimer: I have nothing against single mothers. You know, single mothers are doing, you know, whether they're there by choice or by force. A lot of them are doing the very best that they can. And it's a hard job. My wife technically was a single mother. I was I was on deployment for almost 10 years, the first 10 years of my son's life. Mm. Um, so she had to be, you know, she manages the house. She had to raise him. She had to be mom and dad. And it's tough. But what I think a lot of that is, is, is there's been such a with, you know, the toxic masculinity and all of this is, you know, young men are being more and more raised in a single parent household 99 times out of 100. It's going to be with, you know, largely female presence. You know, kids go to public school. Ninety nine percent of the teachers are female teachers. And my wife's a teacher. Um, But men, men do not want to be teachers anymore because they're afraid of the sexual harassment charges Mm. and the constant scrutiny they're under. So young males are being not and I'm not saying this is bad in any way, shape or form. But I can prove it through life experience that there is a process that young men especially react to a male presence. And I give the example of when I was a Cub Scout leader. You know, our son was in, I was a Boy Scout. You know, our son went through. He's an Eagle Scout. A lot of our friends are Eagle Scouts. But I was a Cub Scout leader, and my wife was too. You'd have, imagine, 50 10-year-olds. So you can imagine how noisy that can be and how raucous it can be. Well, my wife and the other female leaders would be like, all right, boys, settle down, settle down, boys, boys, line up, you know, boys, boys. And I'd be standing over like this, just off to the side, and I'd let it go for about five minutes. And then all of a sudden, I would be, gentlemen, at a slightly higher volume point than that. And I would say it one word and in that voice, but, you know, a couple of notches higher on the volume scale is gentlemen. and every boy's head in that place would snap to me. Mm. And I'm like, let's line up. Let's take our seats. And I could just, and I could do it. And I came to the conclusion that it's just because we are males, young men will, they resonate to that, whether it be pitch, tone, that voice or just another strong, I don't, I, God, I hate to use the word alpha because they've overkilled that. Right. Yeah. But that the, when they, I call it, when they recognize leadership, when they recognize leadership, it's like that. And I'm not saying that there's not women that can't do that. Yeah. But I think that's what happens. And so because we have taken that away and men can't do that, you know, we've taken the boy scouts and torn them apart. Now it's boys and Girl Scouts. Yeah. You know, so we still had the Girl Scouts. We still had the Cookie Mafia. But now we have all girl Boy Scout troops. But there's a time and a place for everything. And, but, and because you take young men and you take them to the woods and camp and you teach them these things. But you also had that opportunity to have those conversations, you know, from, a, from two males. You can have those types of conversations. Because I would sit around the campfire at night and with the older Scouts. You know, we would we would we would play, but we would do these scenarios where I'm like, you know, okay, so if you had this happen at school, how would you react? Well, you know, I'd laugh at them and all that, and I wouldn't I wouldn't judge. I'm like, why would you laugh at them? And we'd talk down we would talk down these life scenarios, and a lot of it I would eventually get around to the the simple premise of being a man is have manners, be polite, be respectful, don't be a dick. Really, is what it comes down to. You know, treat, treat every woman you come in contact with, treat her 
with the same respect you would treat your mother, your sister, your grandmother, your aunt, you know, treat them with the same respect you would have for yourself because you are a reflection of how you treat people is a reflection of you, not a reflection of the person that you're treating. It's a reflection of what you really think about yourself. So if you're a jackass to people, then you're probably a jackass and it's not them. It's you. So I try to teach these guys this, but you got to have, you got to have that bonding moment. You got to have, you got to have those certain, I call them the crucibles. You know, we laugh now. My son's 23. He'll be 24 next month. Um, he, I went full circle when he graduated high school. He was 18. And I'm like, what are you going to do? You were a C student at best, you know, smart as a whip, just like his father, lazy <laughs> and wanted to be a clown. You know, I'm like, so what are you going to do? So he joined the Navy. You know, he did a four-year tour in the Navy, or not quite four years, three, three years. Um, didn't like it. Okay, that's fine. It's not for everybody. He got out, and now he works at Boeing in Charleston, South Carolina, on the Dreamliner, on the 787 line. He got his A&P license with his VA um, all before he's 24 years old, which is, you know, I'm proud of him for that. But, you know, full circle with him, you know, we laugh now because – you know, he calls me all the time and he'll say something like, oh, man, I got to do this. And I just like to laugh at him. I'm like, adulting sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> He's like, he goes, yeah. You know, he goes, man, you know, I wish I'd have known, you know, you know, and I love when he tells his mom, oh, you were right. Mm. You know, and my wife is relentless with him on that, you know. But again, at what point does a person, does a young man become a man? You know, I think when you reach that first full challenge to yourself to where you absolutely you're almost at rock bottom and you actually have to pull yourself up for the first time by yourself. You know, I'm not saying that makes you a man, but I think that's the turning point to most people. And that's when you that's kind of why when you hit that adult mode of, hey, I can do this by myself, you know. So I think it's I think it's a good thing to learn. And then pain is not. Pain is not a bad thing. You know, mm. suffering is not a bad thing. Wow. So do you um so do you, you look at mentoring as just kind of a way of giving back? Like how many people at once do you mentor and do you do you do you do it professionally or do you just do it uh volunteer or, or what? No, no, I don't do it professionally. Okay. I would never I would never do it and I don't say that. I would never do it professionally because um to me if you pay me for it, you're con I'm consulting you. Mm. Um and to me mentoring is it's you know, I got to where I'm at today. I'm standing on the shoulders of some giants. Yeah. You know, I truly am. Uh, there have been people that have course corrected me, given me that little bit of rudder correction, um, steered me right. Um, they have helped me out. And so to me, it's it's I, I need to pay it forward. It's my turn. You know, I need I need to pick that person up, put them on my shoulders and then we keep the chain. We keep the tower growing. Um, I, I kind of. I don't really have a set number. I mean, I mentor anybody, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of the times when I, the, my mentoring style is, is not really by the book. Um, you know, I tell people that have asked me, Hey, you know, would you be my mentor? Sure. I'll be your mentor. Um, uh, I'm not going to do work for you. I'm not going to give you answers, but what I am going to do is I'm going to be an honest sounding board. And I think that's more what mentoring is, is, you know, I always advise people, you know, for me, I wouldn't mentor, you know, my professional career now is I'm a project, I'm a program manager for the government, for the Navy. Hmm. I wouldn't really, I don't, I won't mentor anybody in program management because not that I don't like them, but my personal mentor right now is a, a senior engineer, is a chief engineer. Hmm. I think it's good to get out of disciplines. Okay. You know, because I mean, you're a musician, it would be easy for you to get a mentor that's a musician and you guys would naturally fall flow your conversations based on, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know, I know that I know, you know, I know how to play classical music. I'm classically trained. You would fall into that. Whereas if you picked up like a program manager, I don't, I couldn't carry a tune in the bucket. You know, I, I, I couldn't even, they wouldn't even let me hit the block with a stick when I was in <laughs> grade school, you know, cause I kept missing the block. Yeah. So, you know, I have no concept about music. But that doesn't mean, and in fact, I would say that in that, an example like that, if you're out of discipline, by me not knowing the technical part of your discipline, it makes me a better listener when you talk because I don't, I'm not glossing over because yeah, 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 I know that. Mm. I know what he's talking about with that. 
because I can listen to you and I have no idea what you're talking about. So I have to engage and I have to focus really hard on that to get the message of what you're trying to tell me. And so it makes me a better listener and it makes me a better mentor. So and it's, it's really to me, it's just it's, it's not life advice. It's not professional advice. It's not advice at all. It's just a sounding board. Mm -hmm. And for me to sit there and go, okay, well, you know, you go, well, here's my plan. And I go, okay, well, that's a pretty good plan. Have, and I won't say, well, if I were you, I would do this because that's just stupid. Mm -hmm. I'm not you. But, excuse me. What I usually say is, that's great. Um, have you thought about this? Or would you consider this? Or something I've noticed. And, and so I think it's really, it's just, it's one of those things to where it's not so much, it's, it's, it's almost a duty to me because of the people that have helped me, it's my duty to help others. And so I, I kind of look at it as that is that's kind of a, a mission. And part of my mission and message thing is just, you know, I'm concerned about the, the moral compass and the professional compass and just, just how young men and, and I've, I've mentored young women before too. And it's, it's all about to me. It's like, I kind of want to keep, we, we, we have so many distractions today that will take you away from what your core values are. And I ask people all the time, I'm like, what are your core values? Well, what are you talking about? Well, everybody has a set of core values. You know, do you have a mission statement? Do you have a, a goal? Do you have a vision? You know, you start with a vision, you know, I want to be rich. Okay. That's a vision. You know, now my mission statement and you know, I want to be rich by doing this, 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 and this. And then your goals are in the five, five years from now, I'll be at $500,000. And then you take it from the other. But how are you going to do that? Your core values, are you going to do it by any means necessary? Are you going to cheat people? Are you going to lie, steal? What are you going to do? I mean, you have to have that little core integrity inside. What are your core values? You know, I was easy. I was in the Navy. Ours are honor, courage, and commitment. You know, so those are my, I've kept those and I teach those, you know, is, you know, what is honor? Okay, well, honor's got a million definitions to it, but really what it comes down to is honor is doing, doing what's right all the time. And it's not doing what you think is right or what you want to be right. It's about what you know is right. Because mm. we always have that inside us. Everybody knows what's right. You know, it's just when you, when you separate from that, then it just becomes a conscious decision. And then your action out of honor is your integrity. Mm. Integrity is what you, I say, you know, integrity is what you do when people aren't looking. Mm. That's the action out of that. Your honor is integrity, but you know, that's to me, that's honor. Honor is a privilege. You know, courage is, you know, we say courage is the value that gives me the moral and mental strength to do what is right with confidence and resolution, even in the face of temptation or adversity. Mm. So courage is not being, is not the absence of fear. It's having having that wherewithal and that integrity and that strength and that discipline to do what's right. You know, the, the best example I can get is you, you're at work and you get off at four o'clock and it's three fifty nine. But, you know, it's going to take you 30 more minutes to do that job. Do you take the shortcut and get out of there on time or do you do what's right? Do it the right way. Stay the extra half hour and move on about your life. You know. Some everybody's going to do something different and I'm not here to judge anybody for what they do. I know what I would do. Um, and then commitment, commitment is just, you know, making yourself better. This, this whole self-improvement thing around is just making yourself better. Be committed to being better every day. You know, you get a different, you get a new chance every day. You wake up, you, you get another set of, of time. Here's your chance to go out and do something positive in the world. Be nice to someone, help someone. Change the world a little bit. You know, do your thing. Quit worrying about, well, one person can't change the world. You're right. One person can't. But you can change the world that's around you. So work on that. Quit worrying about it. You know, so I, I kind of go with that. And it's like, you know, the, the, the end speech that I always give when I talk about honor to whatever group I'm giving it to, Boy Scouts or anything, the thing that I'd like to, to tell people is honor is you know, to think about in a context that not a lot of people think about is I take, I take them back to the declaration of independence and it's, you know, everybody knows the beginning of the, the declaration of independence, you know, you know, it's not hard, you know, we're, we're going to get, we're going to make a set of complaints about, you know, the King and we're going to go off and be ourselves. 
But what I remind, especially young men groups, that if you look at who sat there and signed the Declaration of Independence, the average age was in the, you know, somewhere in the late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Was, wow. was the average age. You know, there were young men there as young as 19. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, obviously the older guys that were in their 50s and, and some of the that were ancient in the 60s. 60 was ancient in those days. Right. So I tell them, I was like, think about that. I was like, the average age is slightly less than 30. These guys came together and said, we've had enough and we're going to basically, we're going to overthrow a monarchy and we're going to set ourselves free and we're going to, and we're going to do this by any means necessary. And they took it to the point that when you get to the to the to the last part of the Declaration of Independence, and when they say, and to this endeavor, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And so the point I make to young men is like, these were guys that were some of them were very rich farmers, some of them were nobodies, some of them were businessmen and merchants. But the fact that these guys sat down and put pen to paper. And made a the ultimate commitment that look at what they will look at the three things that they treasured the most that they were willing to put up as collateral to this to show the king we are all in on this. They put up their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. I'm like, if you keep your honor sacred, it's a it's a it's a commodity, it's a currency. You know, you have to manage it, you have to be wise about how you spend it. Be wise about where you give it away, you know, things like that. So if I can get if I can get young people framed around that whole thing of, you know, do what's right, you know, get that voice inside their head. And it's it may need to be that voice they never had as a parent. You know, they may not have had a parent that gave them that voice. They may not have had that mentor. They might not have had that leader. But, you know, I see it on TV all the time. You see that, you know, the opioid crisis. There's a there's a choice. Someone makes that choice to put that needle in the arm or to light up that crack pipe or, or buy that meth. You make that choice somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. Somebody is missing that voice in the back of their head. That person, that influencer to put that voice in the back of your head to say, are you doing what's right? Is this the right thing to do? Is this the right thing? If they don't have that voice, it's you give in to the urges. Yeah. And you make that decision. But if you have that outside influence and you have someone that has been a role model in your life or has been an influencer, hopefully, 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 that just for that one second, if it just stops you for one second, that, that one second time frame, that one Mississippi may be long enough for a cop car to ride by for a light to come on and the dealer gets scared off. It, it could just be that little bit of time. That's, that's the difference between life and death. That's a little dramatic. I get it, but you know, that's the thing is that's where I'm going with that. So, yeah, I mean, that definitely makes me think about just how, um, I don't know. Like I, I try to study history a lot and I study like a lot of like votes on policy along through the history. And it's like so much change happens on the margins. You know, mm-hmm. it'll be like, you know, usually no more than 10, 15 percent of whatever's being measured is the what tips the balance in one. And, and it can come down to like seconds or yeah. everyone's got those moments in their life where they if they would have gone another way, it mm-hmm. would have been totally different. And, and it, it's like, I don't know, it's like the fragility, fragility of decision making and, yes. you know, an individual's, you know, like like it's why leadership is so important and. And it can happen in such slim margins. It's crazy. It's it's the ultimate risk management. Mm. I mean, people in business, everybody knows risk management. Life is the ultimate risk management. Every decision you make has a cause and it has a factor. You know, what caused it? What's going to be the outcome? And so, I mean, that that's, I mean, really, if, if people learn to look at their life as a risk matrix, you know, you got to think about it. every single day you're making a decision. And, you know, people will tell you, you know, well, Things happen that way for a reason. You know, I I can't argue that. I can't argue fate. I'm not going to argue fate because I'm not well-versed enough or scholarly enough to to argue that point. But I think a lot of there is a lot of fate. I think there's a lot of fate that is, you know, opportunity. You know, I I tell the story not to be religious, but, you know, it's you make a lot of your own stuff. I tell the I tell the old joke is, you know, there's a dude. 
and there's a flood down in New Orleans. And guy crawls up on his roof, and the water keeps rising. And this guy, you know, comes by with a, a canoe and says, "Brother, would you, come on, get in." Hmm. Nope, I've been praying to the Lord. The Lord's yeah. gonna save me. Okay. Next thing you know, a big freaking lifeboat comes by. You need to get in. The water's rising. Nope, I prayed to the Lord. The Lord's going to save me. Helicopter comes. You need to get on. We'll drop you a rope. Nope, I've prayed to the Lord. The Lord will save me. Well, the water comes up. The dude drowns. Hmm. He gets to heaven. He meets God, and he looks at God, and he's all pissed off. <laughs> and he goes, hey, God, I prayed to you to save me. you know. And yet, here I am. I died. God looked at him. He goes, Jesus, dude, he goes, I sent you a canoe, a lifeboat, and a helicopter. What else do you want from me? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's like the like at what point is you know, if you know, if God's the creator, like at what point I mean he he gave us the ability to help ourselves and our intellect exactly. and yeah, and and that yeah. yeah. So I so, you know, and so now my point to that is you get a lot of circumstances and you get a lot of things thrown at you, you you can also you can build your own fate. Mm. You 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 can you can steer it. It's not a, it's not a bus out of control. So, but yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of, that's kind of how, you know, I kind of look at things. And so, you know, if I can, you know, every now and then I have to throw a, a corny dad joke out there to get people's attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's well, that's that, you know, we just have a couple of minutes left and I, yeah. that was the last thing I was going to ask you about, like kind of, um, you know, that's when I'm teaching music and stuff like that, it's like, uh, you know, being funny and entertaining while getting a message across is, is super mm -hmm. crucial. You can't be labeled as the, as the serious guy. And you know, when did you start making corny dad jokes on Twitter and has that helped your, your message and stuff like that? Dude, I tell you, the, the, the dad joke thing, it started a few months ago because I got so, I got so pissed off one afternoon and I shouldn't be pissed off reading Twitter. First of all, mm. that's my fault, but you know, I'm sitting here and I'm watching some of these arguments go on and some of this stuff and people are just really, you know, you, they've gotten so tight assed about some of this stuff. You couldn't pull a pin out of their ass with a tractor. So <laughs> I sat there and, and I just decided, I'm like, you know what, you know, screw this. And so I just, one of these old stupid corny dad jokes that I used to get with my son, I just tweeted it. And, you know, I think at the time I had like a thousand and something followers, 1500 or something. And I would get, I would post my honor tweets and I'd post my leadership stuff and I get, nah, you know, I get 20 likes and I was, I, I really didn't care. I'm not out for this to do the followers. Cause I'm not, you know, I guess I'm a brand technically now, but I'm not using it to try to do anything other than get my message across. And so I put up the stupid dad joke and I think it was the one where it was like, I witnessed a robbery in an Apple store and now I'm an eyewitness, you know, and I spelled <laughs> it like iPhone stupidest joke in the world and i get up the next morning and i never had my mentions at 99 plus and i was like what the hell and so i had to turn i had to i had to mute that conversation because you know it got like 2000 and something likes Whoa. got retweeted like 400 <laughs> times and i was like so then it just got to be funny because i was like all right so i i went through my repertoire of corny dad jokes and i post these things and it'd be like just stupid amount of responses it's so funny I, how that works yeah and then i throw a tweet in there about you know self-leadership is getting your path blah 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 you know i take something from you know marcus aurelius or something and very stoic and very serious and i post it and i get three likes <laughs> and then i posted about you know if a cow is defective is it utterly ridiculous you know it's just <laughs> stupid 600 likes people retweeting the shit out of me and the next thing i know i'm getting like 100 followers a day and I'm like, oh, my God. And so what, what it really became is unbeknownst, it was, it was almost like a social experiment to me to, to see just, you know, are we really that South Park mentality that we're going to laugh at who killed Kenny over, you know, who killed the Kennedys? Mm. You know, it's just kind of that analogy to me. It's like you can be very serious and be very funny. And I was going to quit doing it. And then uh, Billy Redhorse, the gentleman mystic, who was one of the first guys I followed in, I sat with Billy in person in Atlanta and had dinner. I mean, he and I talk all the time. Hmm. You know, I told him, I was like, look, I was like, hey, man, I was like, Billy, I'm going to quit doing this, man. I was like, this is just ridiculous. And he goes, well, he goes, look at it this way. He goes, why don't you use it as a tool? 
And I'm like, hmm. He goes, tweet the dad jokes out every now and then. He goes, but then throw that wisdom gem in there. Throw that one. He goes, because if they're reading you, they're going to catch it. Mm. And so then I started taking dad jokes and kind of, you know, kind of reword them a little bit. Cause now obviously I run out. So I have to get them offline. And I really don't know what people's fascination with me is because you can Google corny dad jokes and get the same jokes I'm getting. <laughs> but it's like the one I've, I tweeted yesterday. I kind of twisted that around a bit and it was the one and and it was the one that was, Oh, shoot, hold on. it was the one that was, you don't, you only need a parachute. You don't need a parachute to skydive once. You only need a parachute to skydive twice. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. I saw that one. <laughs> And, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of funny when you first read it, but then when you read it again and you kind of go, hey, wait a minute, you know, what's he, and, and really I have no, I've had no hidden message behind it, but I've had people DMing me going, hey, dude, I see the really, I see the hidden message you were trying to get across there. And I go, so why don't you tell me? Tell what me what that is. <laughs> I didn't want to tell them because I don't know what you're talking about. And they were like, well, you're talking about the ex- existential need in our lives to gain the possessions <laughs> to be able to do this. And I'm like, see, you got it, man. Congratulate. Good wow. on you, bro. You know, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I, That's hilarious. Me, yeah. To me, it was just funny because I, I based it off in the, the, the original thing was, is if, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. <laughs> you know, so I kind of took that joke and went, okay, well, you only need a parachute once. You know, because there was something I saw, you know, use parachutes or something. But <laughs> as I put it yesterday, I was like, you know, the, the dad jokes are kind of like, you know, it sounds kind of it's kind of like that's just the hook that now I've discovered that I can use that hook to get people in. Mm-hmm. And so if they'll kind of if they read those and if, you know, every fifth tweet that I do. And honestly, now I use buffer. OK, so my, my dad jokes are all buffered and they're planned out in advance. So if. You know, you, you hit a couple of dad jokes and then hopefully you'll say, oh, hey, Chief Chuck posted something. And if I post something and you read it real quick, you might go, well, that wasn't funny. But hopefully the message still stuck in there subliminally. So I don't know. We'll see. Cool, man. But yeah. It's very entertaining. I like yeah. it. Yeah, it's cool, man. So it, do it keeps you, me entertained, too. Do you um so do you um do you give like public speech uh, do you give speeches anywhere or do you mainly just uh, talk to like scout troops and stuff like that? You doing, doing like conventions, things like that? Not yet. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because I kind of had a conversation the other day with, with a couple of folks. Um, I, I kind of really want to get into that because that's really, you know, at this point in my life, you know, it's I've got a great career. You know, I don't need to do it, but I, I want I would love to be able to speak at, you know, at, you know, conventions, gatherings, you know, hell, I'll talk to a Kiwanis club or a Lions club. You know, I'll mm-hmm. talk to your book club, you know, your old ladies playing bridge. I'll come in and entertain you for a little while. Um, but no, I would really like to, to, and I need to just, I need to get off my ass and get started and, you know, create, you know, a brand. I need to set up a website, you know, and just be like, Hey, I, I'll talk for free. You know, I'm not out to make money and all this, but I would love dearly love. Um, so if anybody listening, if you got a scout troop church group, I'll promise not to use my sailor words at church. I can do clean. I can do PG. Yeah. Um, I can do full on R rated too, man. Don't get me wrong. So, you know, whatever you want, I can do it, you know? So, but no, I, I haven't really, you know, I'm not to that point yet, but I, I'm hoping to be there. So cool. All right. So I think that's all about all the time we have. So why don't you tell yeah. people where they can find you on Twitter, uh, maybe an email website or something like that. And yeah. uh, we'll get out of here. Okay. Yeah, man. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at chief Chuck two K. Um, that's just the number two and K. Um, cause I made chief in the year 2000, actually 1999, but it was 2000 for military stuff. So it's chief Chuck 2k. Um, you can chief Chuck 2k at Gmail. You can e- email me if you want me to come speak anywhere. You can DM me on Twitter. Um, I do, I don't have a, my own email list right now. What I'm doing is part of the Aeon media. You can find them on Twitter. You've seen them, uh, Garrett Daly and his group were A I O N media. Uh, what we do is we have an email list out now that you sign up for the email, you get five Monday through Friday, you get five different authors. Um, I'm usually in the rotation one day a week. This today was my day. I wrote, you know, what is honor. Yeah. Uh, so you can sign up for that. And, you know, really that's the easiest ways to get a hold of me, man, is through Twitter or email. And, you know, I'm more than happy to, to speak anywhere. 
All right, sounds good. Yeah, I, I signed up for that email list today, and I saw your email, so I, yeah, cool. it, was, it was pretty cool, man. Thank you. Yeah, it ranges a gamut. I mean, you got Garrett, who is a philosophy major, who he talks in a, another like Vulcan language I don't understand sometimes, but you know, you got Benjamin. You, you got a bunch of us that jump in there. You got Ryan, who's path and manliness, or flyover country. You know, a couple of guys. It's you know, it's all. <clears throat> we're trying to be the new messengers. You know, we're trying to you know as the as the red pill is imploding upon itself mm-hmm. and it's become a huge Bravo channel cat fight. Um, we're trying to step up into that realm and, and be a positive message to people. So um, yeah, you can get a hold of me anytime, man. If you, if you need advice, mentoring, whatever. All right. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much for checking us out on call me ignorant today. Also the ones that check us out after today, you can find this uploaded to YouTube BitShoot, freedomscoop.com as a video and Apple, Spotify and Google play Podbean as a podcast. Follow me on Twitter at ignoramus Steve. Send me an email at stevenignoramus at gmail.com. If you feel like you've benefited from the show, want to support, you can donate via DLive, PayPal, or Streamlabs, or sign up for a monthly pledge on Bitbacker, Subscribestar, or Patreon. All of that is linked below in the show description. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. My guest today was Chief Chuck Whit- Whitworth. You can find his information in the show description uh, linked below. Nice talking to you, Chuck. That was really fun. You too, man. Thanks, Steven. All right.